Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. This is a fitting text for following that song. I could even imagine the heavens opening up and that's what we heard. Thank you. Let's go to God in prayer. God, we thank you for the opportunity to hear your word in song, in prayer, in spoken word, in fellowship. We pray, O oh God, that we might have hearts that are open to receive your word, minds ready to be illumined by your word, and that your word might compel us with our next step. We thank you for all of these opportunities to be your children, to be your beloved. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So Mark is one of the most, I think, interesting gospels. Because Mark is all business. Get down to it immediately. And don't mess around with long genealogies and things of that nature. Listen to the scriptures as we walk with Jesus, as his ministry begins, from the very first chapter of Mark. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. The word of the Lord. It was Easter morning, April 14th, 1968, and I was baptized by immersion at the First Christian Church in Brawley, California by Reverend John Allred. And I was 13 years old, and I was in the eighth grade. And as I came up out of the water, I knew that what I wanted to do with the rest of my life was to be a minister, like Reverend John Allred. I was young and, and certainly idealistic, as you're supposed to be, and felt that if I listened to God, surely the way would be made clear and the, and the path would be easier, and I would be supported all along the way. And the years that followed were interesting. They were full, not of clear paths and encouragement, but full of struggle and conflict. I was the only female at that time at the college I attended and the, in any of my seminary, seminary classes, I was the only female in the preaching program or in Hebrew or Greek classes. I was shunned by the whole, mostly by the male population and labeled as a troublemaker 
by the female population. I was counseled by the faculty and well-meaning church leaders that my call was not credible because it was unscriptural. And even after completing my studies, there were complications with churches calling a woman. It was not an easy time, and I think it was probably a good thing that when I was 13, I did not know that it wouldn't be an easy time. I never dreamed that I would be a controversial issue. I never wanted that. I wanted to share the love of God. But I have to admit, I too, along the way, encountered many angels that ministered to me. There were a teacher here and there that secretly supported me, friends that encouraged me, and after a long time, congregations that would call me. It wasn't until years later, with some distance and with some experience, wisdom, that I could look at my life from the balcony rather than right in the midst of it. And I began to understand in a new way, because of my own experience, Jesus' time in the desert as different than a a punitive or um, a sense of, of having to fight your way through. I experienced it in the same way that the Hebrew children were in the desert for 40 years, the same way that Jacob had to leave his his home and traveled to a far place as he evolved to become the man he was. As Abraham and Sarah were called from where they were to where they needed to be. The, the time in my desert, the time in their desert, and the time in Jesus' desert prepared us. Our struggles enriched and pushed us to persevere and to become, and became preparatory for me for the last 42 years of the most beautiful and wild adventure I could ever ask for in ordained ministry. And at those times, in those years, it just felt hard. It didn't feel victorious in the middle of it. And it felt unfair. And sometimes I felt so stripped and so bare that the only thing I could do was listen and follow and cling to my faith like a drowning person and a life preserver. So when I come to this text, I look at Jesus in a new way. I look at Jesus not being driven to the desert so that God could figure out if Jesus was the right person. Or for Jesus to be uh, driven to the desert to have a great duel with Satan. But Jesus needed to know and be prepared that he could do what God was calling him to do. Just as Jacob needed to know that he was the man, Abraham needed to know. The Hebrew children had to become the people they needed to be to fulfill the purposes of God. So it became an interesting story for me because God never disappoints. Because God is trustworthy and faithful and listening and following a God who is always there, who never disappoints and is always trustworthy, builds trust. And what I have found is if you trust God 
And in turn, God can trust you. In the words of Dr. Seuss, oh, the places we'll go. Mark is a, is a type of uh, writer that does everything very quickly. It, things happen immediately. And this account of Jesus' first public appearance is no exception. If Mark's story was the only one we had, we would really know nothing about John's attempt to get Jesus to baptize him because that's not mentioned. Nor would we know that there was a debate, a dialogue between Jesus and Satan in the wilderness because that's only in Matthew and Luke. All we would have if we only had Mark are these seven sparse verses moving at breakneck speed. We blink once, and Jesus is traveling from Nazareth to the Jordan River. And then we blink twice, and he's preaching his first sermon. And behind him, between those few verses, are his baptism, his vision of divine favor, his wilderness temptation, and John's arrest, all rolled into those first nine verses of Mark. Mark moves quickly, and yet he fills these verses with momentous echoes from Israel's past. There's such a parallel, always. Is that Jesus with the wild beasts or Adam naming them in the garden? Is that Jesus in the desert for 40 days? Or is it Moses in the wilderness for 40 years? Is that God's voice coming from heaven? Or is it the prophet Isaiah who's quoted? And in John's arrest... We even have a fore-echo of an arrest yet to come when Jesus, like John, would be silenced by Rome. So, because there are so few verses in all this that's happening, my invitation today is for us to slow it down just a little bit. We can slow Mark down and maybe we can hear a little bit about how Mark speaks to us today. Why does Jesus who is not a sinner, have to be baptized in the first place. Jesus embodies and embraces John's baptism. It signifies a public act of commitment to the way of God that John has been preaching. It's as though saying, this is something that John is telling you, prepare the way of the Lord. John has been telling you this, believe him. The way of the Lord is here. He perfectly embodies John's call to repent of the world's ways. And repentance not only from the sins of the world, but repentance, a turning away from the whole sinful nature of the world, not from the people in it, but from the sinful nature. And this kind of repentance amounts to nothing less than really death. With his baptism, Jesus signals the end of his former life. It's interesting, we don't really think about him having a former life because we only get to touchstone down on certain points. But he had a former life. He was, he was of an age where most Jewish men would have been settled down and had a family. Uh, he was a rabbi, so he was doing what he needed to do. But in this, he ends his former life. He dies not only to sin, but to all the assumptions, to all the worldviews, to the entanglements and the obligations that 
his former life as a citizen of Galilee gave him. He's no longer subordinate to the temple, the Jerusalem authorities, Herod, Caesar, or the Roman occupiers. His baptism in some ways is not only a religious act, but it's a political and economic assertion of God's lordship. That God has an interest and God has a part, not just in the religious, but in the everyday life of the people. When he emerges from the waters of the Jordan River, Jesus is the first citizen of the kingdom. Completely free of obligations to anyone or anything but God and God's coming rule, Jesus is now free to pursue God's call and empowered to do all the things that will define his ministry. Jesus' baptism marks for him the end of the old world and the beginning of the new. And our baptism, we don't describe it any differently than that. We have a harder time understanding what that means. It's made clear for Jesus as he emerges from the Jordan River and sees the heavens being torn apart. And I want you to pay attention to the words that Mark uses. They're not soft words. He doesn't say, and the heavens parted. And a dove came down. He says the heavens were ripped apart, both violent and hope-filled. The only other place that Mark uses this word for ripping and tearing is in the description of events that takes place at the moment that Jesus dies when the veil is ripped apart in the temple and is torn from top to bottom. And that's the word he uses when he describes the ripping, the ripping open of the sky. God is doing the ripping. Th- these are both highly ap- apocalyptic moments. And there are also moments when the boundaries between earth and heaven are disordered and dissolved. As the heavens are being torn apart, Jesus also sees the spirit coming down from heaven like a dove. This is the same spirit of God that moved over the face of the waters of the deep at the creation of the world. And the descent of the spirit signals that God is now remaking the broken creation. While this spirit is shown here to be gentle and dove-like, pay attention that this spirit acts with an awesome disruptive power. That's something that we seem to miss time and time again. That God's ways are not easy. That Jesus' life is demanding and the spirit is not a fluff ball. The spirit called the comforter is not simply there to make us feel better, but to comfort us with the reminder that God is with us. The spirit of God comes without warning. It comes out of a heaven that's torn wide apart and it reorients Jesus with the world and it sets him on a revolutionary spiritual path. And because of the revolutionary nature of Jesus' ministry, it's bound to confront the world. We will always be out of step with the world. We will always be irrelevant to the world. 
because we see things as Christians, as followers of Christ, we see things very differently. We are called to see uh, success and love and forgiveness and all of these essentials that sometimes the world at large feels are are unnecessary and can only lead to oppression if given too robustly. He proclaims God's vision, and with that claim, he brings in the urgency of the inbreaking reign of God for Jesus in Mark's gospel. He encounters the world's resistance and rejection, and that is the transforming power of the Spirit in the Bible. When Spirit comes, you are changed. I don't know what each of your story are here. I'm sure that some are a story that feels that it has no excitement, that feels like you've just always believed, you've always been there, or you may have a dramatic conversion story. But whatever your story is, you've been changed. You have made a choice of the road that you'll walk, and you walk it here. In Mark's theology, the change sets you on the road to discipleship to a cross, and beyond that. What Jesus heard from God in his disruptive, life-changing experience at the River Jordan, and what he struggled to affirm in the wilderness, was a, a message of sublime wonder. You are my beloved, and you are the one that I am pleased with. That's what was heard at your baptism. He heard an affirmation of his unique being and significance from God. And this is beyond finite historical existence. It was a word that that transcending human origins, rooted in eternity, absolute, unconditioned by the frailty and the uncertainty and contingency of human relationships and historical circumstance. He learned that he was unconditionally God's beloved son, But I wonder if all of this isn't exactly and precisely the message that we ourselves are privileged to hear and to learn in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Granting, of course, that Jesus is a unique, beloved son of God, but must we not also claim in response to him and through him that in our own unique and different ways, we too are called to be sons and daughters of God? Must we not also recognize that through him we too have been given a name and identity and a worth and dignity as humans that is rooted and grounded with all the saints that have gone before us and with all those who will come after us in the eternal and unconditioned and alterable being and love of God? If that's not the good news, I can't even imagine what is. If we can hear this voice which transcends all earthly voices and which shuts out all that chatter and all that mean-spiritedness and all that pettiness and all the jealousies and all the regrets and all the grudges, when we can hear that eternal voice that transcends it and it anchors our experience and our identity and our worth eternally in God, how different our lives are. Can we not also hear the challenge in that, to believe it, to live it, 
and to declare its truth for every woman and man who is, was, or ever shall be, and especially during this season of Lent. Sometimes we forget that these seasons are meant not only to remind us, but they're also meant to draw us into real time with Jesus, to walking in those days, in the footsteps of Jesus, to giving ourselves over to the practices of the Spirit, to opening our lives up to a deepening and a widening of our relationship with this wonderful and magnificent God. Shall we not also then prepare to bear the cost of our divine name as children of God and mission as Jesus' disciples in the confident hope of our ultimate divine affirmation in the resurrection, power, and love of God. I wish for each of you to experience the knowing, the down-to-the-bones knowing when, with the help of the Holy Spirit, you have discerned the very best way that fits your gifts and talents and passions to live out God's call to the kingdom life. We are all called And then we must discern where we shall place our call and how our call shall further the kingdom of God. But I invite you also to let the path of Jesus keep it real for you. I had an experience as those before me had an experience, as those before them, as our ancient Fathers and mothers have these experiences that divine vocation is, uh, is both amazing and dangerous. Up front, it signals some kind of divine favor, but it also immediately thrusts us into a liminal space, into that space where we, we let the past dissolve and we aren't quite where we need to be. And so we're in a, a, a space that doesn't look familiar and is uncomfortable. The space between letting go of who you were to crossing the threshold to who you are to be. And you're taken into the wilderness place where you are challenged to let your identity dissolve and allow yourself to be reshaped into crucifixion and resurrection disciples. But the last word is don't be afraid. Rather, let the surprise of faith, our Lenten theme, the imaginative tenderness of God leads you to the place you belong and serve God with all your heart, imagination, intelligence, and love. And I can personally guarantee you, oh, the places you'll go. Amen.